0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: So the, the reality is that, you know, you can make a good decision and then the world can act badly as a consequence of that, right? So things can happen. So think about something like I don't know what, poker, right? In poker, you can play the best hand you can and somebody else has a better hand or something else happened. Or you can say, you made a really good decision to buy a home and then some crisis happened or a hurricane came and so on. So we need to separate our decisions from their outcome. And we need to focus on our decisions because that's what we have control over. And it's true for lots of things in life, right? That, that There's lots of randomness. And you can make the best decision possible, and then something else can happen in the world, and then the outcome of that decision is bad. But if you made the right decision, then it's okay, right? So you, if, as long as you focus on the decision itself, I think, uh, I think you're, you're fine. And, and the other aspect is to try and gain some control. Uh, basically say, I could have done things differently. And, and this is very tough, right? Because we have such an instinct of blaming other people and not want to take blame ourselves. But I think that the moment you take blame yourself, all of a sudden you say, I could do things differently, right? Um, and actually, you know, when um, sometimes when we break up romantic relationships, or when we fire people and we say, you know, it's not you, it's just something else, you know, it's easy to say those things because, you know, nobody seems to be at fault, but it does increase learned helplessness. Because if it's not you, then what do you do next time?
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at UnmistakableCreative.com.
2: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week.
0: Dan, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: My pleasure.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I've come across your work uh, in numerous ways over the last several years. I mean, you and I've had a chat before for uh, another podcast that I produced in our freelance basis. I mean, you've written some amazing books and now you've started this in- incredible company uh, with an app that I'm a huge fan of, which we'll talk about. But can you tell us a, a bit about your background, your journey, your story, and how that has led you to all the work that you've done in the world and, and what you're up to today?
1: Uh, so uh, I'm guessing we don't have a few days to <laughs> talk about this. Um, but but very quickly, um, what happened to me was that I got badly burned when I was 18. And I spent about three years in hospital. And Hospitals are a place where you could observe lots and lots of irrational behaviors. And I I had lots of struggles in, in hospital. I mean, there was the uh, the pain, the bandages, uh, you know, different procedures, all kinds of things. Uh, and I actually started reading academic literature at that time, mostly initially about uh, burns and healing. And I, I had some ideas for my physicians. I proposed some new procedures. Um, but But at the end of this, period, actually even before the end, I decided I want to be a doctor. And I decided I want to be a doctor because I, I thought there were lots of things that they were doing wrong that I think should have should have been done better. And I went into interviewing to medical school and they basically uh, disqualified me. So my hands are very badly burned. I have a hard time holding almost anything. I have a hard time holding a pencil. I have a hard time typing. So they say I could never really examine a patient and I could never hold a scalpel, which, you know, examine a patient, I'm not so sure holding a scalpel for sure. You know, I should not risk anybody's life like this. And they basically wouldn't let me do be a, a, a physician. And, but I still, I still had this idea that I wanted to fix things in hospitals. I didn't know how to do it, and I abandoned the idea for for a while. And I started studying at the university. I started studying math and physics, and I realized that I I needed my hands for that as well. So, you know, it was one thing to do high school physics just in your head without uh, having to write anything down. It was a little tougher to do it in in college. Uh, So I moved to philosophy, where I don't have to do anything with my hands. I (laughs) I could just read and it turns out that I didn't like philosophy so much. I I didn't like it because um, I I didn't find anything practical uh, about it. And I still had this desire to fix things. And at the same time, I took a class in physiology of the brain from a guy called Hanan Frank. And Hanan was a grew up in the Netherlands, and he came to Israel uh, as a as a new immigrant, and he. Uh, joined the army and he went over a landmine. And he lost both of his legs. And what was interesting was, uh, among many things, was that he uh, took his interest in pain and made it in, into his profession. So he started studying pain. Um, and I had a lot of experience with pain as well. And I would come and talk to him about our mutual experience. And we would say things, hey, you know, we, we've actually stopped taking Novocaine when we go to the dentist, is this also happening to you? And he would say, yes. (laughs) And we were wondering, you know, are we just uh, becoming addicted to pain or is there something else in there? So, and we started doing experiments on, on pain together, kind of sharing our experience with pain and doing some experiments together. And the other thing was amazing about Hanan was that every time I had a theory about something, rather than saying yes or no, or here's a paper or here is, you know, something you need to do, he would say, uh, Tell me how would you find out whether this is true or not? So for example, in, in one class, we talked about epilepsy and I had a theory about the development of epilepsy and he asked me how I would go about it and I came up with a very complex procedure. I, It was a procedure to create epilepsy but block it in a particular part of the spinal cord and I basically came up with an animal model. I would say, okay, I can implant a catheter in the rat's spinal cord and I can create an epileptic seizure in their brain, but I could reduce it in the spinal cord. And he said, go for it, try it out. And you know, that's why I started operating on, on rats and I discovered that really my hands were terrible. I actually killed way too many rats compared to what I, <laughs> I, I should, so it was a really good decision, I didn't become a physician. And at the end of this experience, it turns out my theory was wrong, but but nevertheless this idea that if you have an idea you could just test it was so wonderful and refreshing and i and i started uh, working more and more in that in that direction and then over time i became more of what i wanted to do from the beginning which is to try and figure out what kind of things we do badly in the world and how can we how can we fix it and i'll tell you one more thing on the, on a the personal level is that because i write about my injury and because I write about how my experience in hospital has led me to uh, different ideas and uh, different experiments and so on, I get lots of people who are injured, uh, they write me. Right? So people who just got injured write me and say, you know, how do you deal with this? How do you design your future? How do you work on this? And I I get exposed to a tremendous amount of human, human misery. And it is amazing when you look at it, at, at how much of the suffering in the world is man-made, how much of it is our doing. And, you know, you don't need to do a lot to reduce it. So my uh, mission now is to observe human misery, to figure out where it's coming from, and to try and figure out if we can maybe not eliminate it, but vastly reduce it.
0: Hmm. All right. So that that is beautiful. So many questions uh, already that, that they come from this. You know, you mentioned spending three years in the hospital, and that's a very long time to be in, in such a painful situation. And, you know, one of the things that, that always intrigues me about people who've been through these kinds of experiences, which seems to be a common thread uh, of almost anybody who's appeared on our show, is navigating the emotional ups and downs of an experience like that. Uh, you know, so I, I'd love for you to talk about that. Uh, during that period of your life. And also, this question comes up for me over and over again is, you know, what distinguishes somebody like you who comes out of something like that and makes obviously a mission and a career out of it versus somebody who really lets that just demolish them and, and get the best of them?
1: Yeah, that it, it's a really good question. And, you know, I, I'm not sure, you know, I'm kind of at the at the best of it. But You know, I've I've observed lots of people in hospital who basically succumbed to uh, the injury and never really became members of society uh, anymore. Um, So, so I think that this is basically the question of resilience and the question of what can cause some people to be more resilient and some people to be less resilient and. We don't have a good answer for this, uh, partially because if you think about people with PTSD, we get people who've suffered PTSD, but we don't know the people who are exactly in their circumstances and never developed mm-hmm. uh, PTSD. But my subjective, non-scientific uh, thinking about this is that it has two elements to it. Uh, one is the perception of randomness. Right, so the perception of randomness is actually very, very hard to deal with. If you think about all kinds of things, right, you lose your job and nobody tells you why you've lost your job, or you know, you invest your money in the stock market, all of a sudden things go down outside of your control, and um, lots of things are happening to you outside of your control. This is what's called learned helplessness in the uh, literature on you know well being and anti well being, and and this idea that you have random shocks that are under not under your control is incredibly devastating and do you remember these experiments on uh, on the dogs with learned helplessness mm-hmm. yeah so right so you take two dogs and you put one of them in a room and they get uh, a bell and a shock a bell and a shock a bell and a shock so they know when a shock is going to come and you have another dog that is just getting the shocks and they do this for a while and then they put them in a new environment in a new environment, there's a light, and then if they jump to the other side of the room, they don't get a shock, and if they stay in the same side of the room, they get a shock. And the first dog, the dog that learned that there was contingency in the world, keeps on jumping back and forth. They they kind of figure out the environment. They explore. They learn, and everything is fine. The second dog just lies there whimpering on the ground, and the second dog also gets a reduced immune system, more chance of getting cancer, and so, so on. So I think that one big issue is really a feeling of control over your life and I I'm actually quite grateful to the doctor and the nurses um you know they would they would let me um read the medical procedures um and medical literature and they would get me to suggest different uh, treatments and ideas and I think you know actually I I made I made one suggestion that they didn't um Took and I was recently in the burn department. I was at and they told me that now they do it for every patient. Um, so actually, this was it was a nice idea. What what I wanted them to do. Uh, sorry for the diversion, but what I wanted them to do is I said, look, we they have these um, silicon implants that they put for women to create breast implants, and they put them and then they uh, expand them for a while, and then they just kind of get more skin. Why don't you put the same silicon? transplants to me under my skin in my neck and in my hand and then pump it up over a while and you'll create more skin for me and this will be skin that is thick and regular and you could just stretch it you don't need to just cut it and put it somewhere else but you can just stretch it and cover a scar that is next to it and this way it will still have its own blood supply unlike regular transplant skin and they argued me for a while but then they said okay if you want to do it you have to bring those silicon implants so my father brought them from japan uh, three silicon Im- implants and they transferred uh, transplanted two of them in my neck and one in my left hand and for 6 months they inflated them every week and then they they used it and it turns out that now they do it for almost every patient in the in the burn department so that was a nice victory but you know, I think not just the time when I was successful, but trying to get some control. For example, I would uh, figure out when I could have my medications and I wanted to know every beep and I wanted to somehow delay things for five minutes or 10 minutes or ask for something very small. And I think lots of those things basically gave me a little bit of control. Um, So that's uh, that, I think, is the first thing. And I, I think the second thing is focusing on the outside world. So th- this, of course, was not in the beginning, right? In the beginning, I was just focusing on pain. There's a phrase called pain people. And pain people, it means that when you are experience dramatic pain, it's very hard for you to think about anything but but the pain. You're fully consumed by pain. But But later on in life, I basically uh, stopped looking at my own uh, life and my own misery and my own pain. I started looking at, at the world and saying, what What can I do? And, you know, sometimes I would make these funny calculations. Like I remember driving around and trying to figure out how much did the healthcare system invest in me or spend or wasted on me, however you want to think about it and figure out, you know, what's my debt to society and how long will it take me to to pay it back? But I think that, Focusing on other people and what can you do to, uh, you know, even up the score, help the world, help other people, focus on other people's misery has also been very, very successful. So I think it's the combination of getting some control and focusing on helping other people that is, uh, was was very, was crucial for my own uh, psychological recovery. Hmm. So
0: even more questions come from this. Uh, you know, so you mentioned this idea of learned helplessness. And I'm curious, one, how can we overcome learned helplessness if it's become you know part of who we are? How can we on a day to day basis put these sort of control mechanisms into our life, even when there are things that are not that are going to happen that we don't want, that are you know not enjoyable, uh, inevitable and completely out of our control. And then, you know, sort of a third question around that is around the relativity of, of suffering when it comes to experiences. I mean, you went through something incredibly painful, uh, you know, and I can't even fathom, you know, something as as my hands being burned, uh, you know, going through that sounds so traumatizing. And yet, I can have an experience that's nowhere as near as intense and still be consumed by the the, the suffering of whatever that experience is. Uh, So I'm curious, you know, how you deal with that sort of relativity of it all. I know those are a lot of questions in one.
1: Yeah. So, so first of all, let's talk about learned helplessness. I think, I think it's a, it's a huge issue and and I don't have a good answer for you, uh, but, but I have two mediocre answers. (laughs) The, The first one, is that we need to focus about on our behavior rather than the outcome. So the reality is that, you know, you can make a good decision and then the world can act badly as a consequence of that, right? So things can happen. So think about something like, I don't know what, poker, right? In poker, you can play the best hand you can and somebody else has a better hand or something else happened. Or you can say, you made a really good Decision to buy a home and then the, some crisis happened or a hurricane came and so on. So we need to separate our decisions from their outcome. And we need to focus on our decisions because that's what we have control over. And it's true for lots of things in life, right? That, that There's lots of randomness and you can make the best decision possible and then something else can happen in the world and then the outcome of that decision is bad. But if you made the right decision, then it's okay. Right, so if as long as you focus on the decision itself, I think uh, I think you're you're fine, and and the other uh, aspect is to try and gain some control. Uh, Basically, say I could have done things differently, and and this is very tough, right? Because we have such an instinct of blaming other people and not want to take blame ourselves. But I think that the moment you take blame yourself. All of a sudden you say, I could do things differently, right? Um, And actually, you know, um, sometimes when we break up romantic relationships or when we fire people and we say, you know, it's not you, it's just something else. You know, it's easy to say those things because, you know, nobody seems to be at fault, but it does increase learned helplessness. Because if it's not you, then what do you do next time, Mm -hmm. right? In fact, if I say, look, I'm firing you, it is you. (laughs) <laughs> now it's a bit hard, tougher as a discussion to have, and you're going to feel uh, worse in the short term, but you'll be able to know what you can do to fix it. So I think we do need to get some kind of control over our, be- our over our uh, behavior, and we need to think about behavior rather than, mm-hmm. than outcomes.
0: Mm-hmm. So let me ask you about the, the, the okay, you know, go tell ahead, you sorry. Something
1: about in, in science, right? So, so in, when we do research, um, we design experiments and sometimes they happen as we expect and sometimes they don't happen as we expect. And when my students set up an experiment <clears throat> and the experiment is set up great, but the result is, you know, not interesting, for example, and so on, I congratulate them. Right, because they have done everything need, they needed to do. They did their job correctly. Only it turns out the theory was wrong. The people behaved differently than what we what we thought. But they themselves did not do anything less than perfect. Now, if you set up a sloppy experiment, right? Even the result is interesting. You still set up a sloppy experiment. There's no excuse for that. Mm-hmm. But I try to get my students to celebrate good experiments rather than good outcomes. And I think you can think about it in many ways. That's what you, you should be doing.
0: You know, that, that's, that's really interesting. I, I want to go back to this idea of blame, uh, you know, in, in, in those situations, because I think that that's one of those things that it can become all consuming as well, right? Like we can get to the point, you said, it. you know, it will last for a short amount of time, but it can also become obsessive to the point where it becomes debilitating.
1: Yeah. So how do we avoid that? Uh, how do we avoid feeling uh, f- feeling bad about uh, a, a b- blame for something we've done badly,
0: or something that has turned out badly, even if it's not in our control?
1: Yeah, um, you know. So again, I, I, you ask very good questions that I don't have the answer for. I think uh, you know it provides lots of opportunities for research. Um, I actually kind of like the notion of karma from the Indian Vedic tradition. Mm. And th- the notion of karma has a stochastic element in it, right? It says you do good things and sometimes good things will follow, but not always. Sometimes bad things would follow. And all you can do is try to increase the probability that good things would follow. Yeah, so you, you just basically, but but realize that the world is random, and has a lot of stochastic elements. And I think from that perspective, this links us back to the other part of your question. Having a very traumatic injury with lots of things going on very badly is actually incredibly helpful. Uh, because I think I keep things in proportions, right? So when bad things happened, you know, these are just a little bad things, right? So, mm-hmm. so you know, it, it might seem to you like it's terrible, <laughs> like... You know, a paper got rejected or, you know, we didn't get a grant or something happened. You know, in in the big realm of the world, these are small potatoes. No need to worry about it too much. So Mm -hmm. I think worrying about what we do, trying to do things the right way, not worrying too much about the outcome and also keeping up the perspective of what's really important and what's not, all of those are at least helpful in my own life. Hmm.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level, too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So, you know, let me ask you this. This actually takes me back to uh, a conversation I had with Dave Logan, uh, who you may be familiar with. Uh, who wrote a book called Tribal Leadership and a, another one called Three Laws of Performance, which I've been digging into. And I'm really curious, you know, from your perspective as, as you know, somebody who is a behavioral scientist and does the work that you do, how does language and the way we use words play a role in all of this and and shape our experience based on your own sort of uh, research and and experience?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, using language to shape uh, to shape experience. And it's useful in many, many ways. Um, And partially the idea is that as we experience things, uh, they're fleeting unless we have some tags to connect them. And one way to think about it is that experience has the period before the experience, the period during the experience, and the period after the experience. So think about something like vacation. You might plan your vacation for three months. You might go on vacation for a week. You might think back on your vacation for 30 years afterward. And from those three periods, the shortest one is the vacation. And and the question is, how do you experience the vacation ex ante, when you plan it, and ex post, when you remember it? And part of it has to do through language. So you you might have some memory of some images and so on, but language really helps, uh, creates more stable... Uh, lasting uh, memories and impressions. So so there is a question of how do we help people um, actually create better memories? How do we get people to create more lasting memories, memories that have more elements of the good experience? And imagine that you had the best dinner in the world uh, in front of your laptop while working. How much would you enjoy it? Probably not much because you would not be able to pause, think, reflect, and therefore enjoy and probably not remember at all. So I think that language is crucial in order to transfer a momentary experience into a higher-order momentary experience, and crucial into translating into something that would stay with us in the future. And in the, best, the best way to think about it is maybe wine. But right? if you think about what wine connoisseurs do is they create a language that basically take grape juice and make it much, much more exciting.
0: (laughs) And I'm assuming this is something that can be used to also alter memories of of painful experiences as well, right?
1: Everything. I think we we could take good experience and make them bad, uh, make them better. We can take bad experience and make them not as bad. We can also take experience and make them worse, but we don't need to try to do that.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. You know, it's it's funny because the quote that always comes back to me uh, from Three Laws of Performance is, as you label an object or situation, so it appears. Uh-huh. Yeah. So let me ask you this, uh, and then I want to get into this whole idea of irrational behavior. Uh, you know, one of the things that you said as as you started sort of wrapping up, you know, the story of what's led you to where you're at was this idea of your mission in the world is to reduce human suffering and – I love that on so many levels, because I think we share uh, a very similar mission in in the sense that the stories that we tell in the show are designed to help people make radical advances and changes in their lives. And so two questions come from that. One is how we can arrive at a sense of purpose and mission in our own lives, in our own careers and what we're doing in the world. uh, And then I really want to start digging into this idea of how we reduce human suffering uh, in a very practical manner.
1: Yeah. So, first of all, I think that uh, the ability to reduce uh, suffering is everywhere, right? Of course, you know, uh, curing cancer, uh, alleviating poverty, all of those things are, uh, you know, obvious. Uh, but, But the reality is that there's lots of it out there. And I don't think we all need to aim uh, for the same things, we just need to be aware of what's going on around us and trying to reduce uh, whatever whatever is uh, easy and accessible to us. So, you know, um, people think about the poverty in Africa, which, of course, is just terrible. Uh, the amount of poverty in the U.S. is also quite uh, terrible. The quality of our education. I mean, there's just lots of things that are incredibly... Uh, incredibly difficult and sad. So I think that doing a little bit uh, to help is actually surprisingly easy. Just because there's so much uh, suffering uh, to go around. Um, so that that I think is the first one. It's it's not that difficult. It's not that difficult to do. Um, you know the the way I I approach it personally is kind of in two levels. Uh, the first level is people who uh, write me. Uh, so, so people write me with specific uh, questions and, and challenges and I try to uh, to help them specifically. And um, The second one is to basically look uh, around the world and think about opportunities for intervening. Uh, so a couple of years ago, for example, I, I met a group of a uh, non-for-profit who are doing all kinds of work around nutrition uh, in Africa. So these are people who are designing uh, very nice new foods uh, to to feed kids, uh, micronutrients, more healthy, uh, and so on. Uh, only it turns out that the mothers are not very excited to give it to their kids. So the food exists. Um it's, it's better for the kids, but, but there's something about the social system that doesn't allow it. Well, you know, it turns out that my particular expertise is trying to understand human barriers for good behavior. So I plugged in with them and I'm trying to help them. Or, for example, about a year ago we did, uh, I, I live in Durham, North Carolina. So we did a day uh, to local organizations that help the poor with money issues, Uh, community banks, organizations that help with tax preparation, uh, all kinds of other financial organizations. And we said, let's spend the day teaching you about the psychology of money. At the end of the day, we said, look, if you want to work with us, uh, let us know. Tell us what is the problem you want want help with um, and whether you have some manpower to dedicate to this. And uh, we picked a few organizations and we are uh, helping them out so we've gone to their institutions we've visited them we try to understand what are the barriers we make some suggestions so you know in my case it's it's social science so i basically say let me let me find the organizations that need some social science help and see if i could uh, help them do do something something better and uh, it's it's incredibly rewarding because especially if you um, in my case, especially when I go to institutions, um, it's tough. It takes a long time. Institutions are bureaucratical and so on. But the moment you get them to do something different, it affects lots and lots of people. And that's very rewarding. Mm.
0: You know, it sounds to me like a big part of, of reducing suffering is about taking our focus and shifting it one from being one that's internal and about ourselves and shifting it to one that becomes about other people.
1: Yeah. So, um, have you, have you read this? There's a wonderful book called happy money.
0: Mm-hmm. It's funny. It's sitting on my desk as we speak. Okay.
1: So, uh, Mike and Liz are, uh, two good friends. Uh, I, I worked with both of them with Mike. I, I worked a lot. Um, and, and it's an amazing book that basically tells you that the moment you start giving money away or giving things away to other people, our happiness increases beyond the level that we ourselves would anticipate. And um, it really is incredible. But at the same time, you know, there is some incredible misery out there in the world, Uh so I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example of something that we're doing right now, and we'll give you a sample. Um, so there's a slum in Kenya called Kibera. Uh, it, it's, a really, it's a really terrible place. The, the sewage is uh, running in the street. Uh, these are mud huts. Uh, there's no running water. Um, really, really, really very tough. Um, and people live there on about $10 a week and we are trying to get them to save a little bit of money and and why because if you're very poor and you don't have any money and something goes wrong things start deteriorating very quickly so um imagine that you that you're living hand to mouth and one day your goat is sick and your goat gave you you know 20% of your income and now your goat is sick and now you need to make up the income. So you borrow 10% a week and you do this for a few weeks. And then uh, at the end of these few weeks, the goat is fine. But you know what? Now you owe four weeks of uh, worth of money plus the interest. And it's really hard to get out of this. So, So in those cases, it's incredibly important to get people to save a little bit of money. And if they save a little bit of money, then they could have money for rainy days. Now, What is the problem with this saving is that if the saving is accessible, uh, people would just use it, right? Every day you could buy better food, you could buy a little bit more uh, kerosene for your light, you could buy a bit more water. I mean, there's all kinds of things you could do if you had a bit more money. So we created a system in which people could put money in very easily, but would have a hard time taking the money out. So that was the first uh, principle of this uh, system. And the second one was that we tried to convince them to put money in, in different approaches. So for example, some of them, we said, we reminded them every week that it would be a good idea to save some money. Some of them, we said it would be a good idea and we send them a text message from their kids. So now their kids were, uh, as if the kids were, telling them this is a good idea. Some of them, we gave them 10% match. So we said, if you save up to 10, 100 shillings, we'll give you 10% of it. Some people we save, we match them up to 20%. Some people we did what's called pre-matching. We put the money first into their account and we said, if you save up to 100 shillings, you can keep these 10%. If you keep, send spend up to 100 shillings, you can keep these 20%. And if you don't, we'll take it back. But the last thing we did, which turned out to be the most interesting, was we created a coin. And this coin was a gold color, but we told them it was not gold, so nobody was confused. And we told them that um, every, we asked them to take the coin and put it with the rest of the valuable things at their home. And we asked them every week to scratch the coin one way if they saved and to scratch it a different way if they didn't save. And the coin had kind of the numbers of the week uh, on it, so they could know which week to scratch how. And it turns out that this coin led to 20%, sorry, this coin led to twice as much saving compared to the 20% matching. It was by far (laughs) the best approach. Now, how come... Uh, I'll take you a step back. There's a, one of my favorite papers ever. Is a paper that opened, they opened college savings accounts randomly to kids when they were born. And by the time these kids were uh, four years old, they had slightly higher social and mental skills. How come? Do the kids know they're going to college? Of course not. But the parents knew. And because the parents knew the kids were going to college, they treated them slightly better. And then the kids actually had better, better skills. The same thing happened with the coin. The moment you have this coin, you basically change the discussion in the household around savings. Before that, the discussion was just about spending. But now that you had this coin, it was both about spending and about saving. Um, on top of that, it was a tangible representation of savings and people saved much more. And we, This lasted for six months. For the six months of the experiment, we haven't observed it afterward. So now, if you think about this, right? This is a very much saying: we think that people are doing something wrong. We think that people are not saving enough um, for rainy day, and we think that too many rainy days. Um, Let's go and do something, and let's try different approaches and see what seems to be working, and let's see if we could get people to save a little bit of money for rainy day. Now. Are we alleviating <coughs> poverty a little bit? Are we solving it? Of course not. Are these people have will have money for retirement? Certainly not. Uh, but um, are we going to be able to reduce some deterioration of poverty? I think the answer is yes. So. So those are the kind of things I'm trying to do. I'm trying to figure out what are the the, the interventions we can make to make people's lives slightly better. And I I realize that big solutions are not going to uh, come of it, but I'm hoping that small solutions and small improvements are actually easy to achieve. Hmm. So that takes me to a question of how we might, take some of
0: the lessons from this sort of a study and apply some of these interventions into our own lives?
1: Um, So so I think, you know, it depends on what the interventions are and uh, what areas of life, but I think in in lots of things. So look, the, the coin idea goes back to what you mentioned earlier about language and attention. Right? It basically means that things, objectives that are present in your life and you pay attention to them are likely to get uh, achieved and things that are out of sight, out of mind are going to go by the wayside. So now the question is how do you take the things that are important to you and make them more central into your, your life? And uh, before we started the podcast, we talked a little bit about uh, timefall and I think that's that's one way to view to view our calendar, right? So imagine that you have a calendar and imagine that you say, okay, there are some things that get represented on this calendar and some things that don't. So on the regular calendar, the things that get represented are meetings with other people. The things that don't get represented are things like something that will take you 30 hours or 100 hours, exercising, you mentioned meditation, Uh, The things that don't get represented are calling your mother. Uh, So what happens is that the moment you have a a way to represent things easily, uh, like meetings, and you don't have a good way to represent something like writing a book or meditating or exercising and so on, the things that are represented are going to be carried out, and the things that are not represented will not get carried out. And as a consequence, your life is going to be full of things that uh, might not be in your uh, fit fit with your agenda, uh, and and the, so the real question is how do we get the representation of our lives uh, to fit uh, our real objectives? Um, and and I think the the goal of Timeful, you know, so Timeful as as you mentioned, Timeful is a, a startup that uh, you have shown Jacob Banks and I uh, started uh, working on, and we're trying to basically look at this. Um, problem of scheduling. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at it from the perspective of human waste. So we're saying, look, time is an unbelievably scarce resource. We don't have too much of it. Uh, if we waste it, there's no way back. Uh, so we we want to help people use that to the best possible way. And, and we don't mean that we would should all produce the most amount of widgets. And mm-hmm. it's not just about exercising. It's about some a work-life balance in a way that makes us both productive and happy. And, you know, it's hard to figure out what's the ideal, but it's very easy to figure out that we are right now very far from the ideal. So which direction we need to to move is, is quite clear. And then the question is, how do we want to create a system that represents what people want to achieve in a way that would be help people actually achieve those things? Uh, and that's basically what we've been trying to do over the last few years hmm.
0: yeah, so you know for those of you guys listening, huge fan of of the time full i mean it it's caused pretty some some pretty drastic habit changes in me, and we'll we'll link it up in the show notes. but you know one of the things I want to go back to is, is you mentioned sort of having this sense of objectives uh of you know really kind of having a picture of what you want your life to look like, and I think we lose clarity around that. Uh, I mean, to me, it's one of those things we have to constantly remind ourselves of. And I'm very curious, I mean, how we can sort of conduct an inquiry that gives us that kind of clarity so that, you know, the items that I put on my Timeful app are not just sort of going through the motions because I have a new app, but actually leading me to this sense of of happiness and fulfillment.
1: Yeah, Um you know, by the way, I, I have to uh, admit this is not this is not an easy uh, answer, and, <laughs> and you know I, I struggle with it all the time. So I think we we all have a very uh, uh, rich and incredible lives, right? If we were uh, farmers in the 16th century, and we basically had to work the field we would wake up in the morning and work the field and then go to sleep. There was really not lots of questions about what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Life would have been really quite simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, but modern life is very tempting. There are a lot of things to do. The the amount of stimulation, the amount of personal growth, the, the ability to spend time with family, the uh, flexibility we have with our lives. All of those things are really, really, really amazing. Uh, the question is, are we using them uh, to the best of our ability, or are we are we not really tapping this amazing potential of uh, richness and opportunity and so on? And I think sadly we don't we don't tap it. So I I am I myself struggle a lot with this, and uh, I'll give you kind of my my main struggle. By the way, is what kind of things to do and not to do? Right, I get about uh, three requests a day to appear somewhere. Uh, to give a talk, to do a workshop, to help some people. You know, how do I decide what to do and what not to do? If I took everything, I would... I would. First of all, I can't accept even all the invitations I get. But if I accepted all of them, I would basically get nothing else <clears throat> done and I will never be at home. I will never work with my students and so on. And how do you define that? Uh, balance is incredibly, incredibly tough. <clears throat> One, So, so I don't want to say that I have uh, an answer for this. By the way, p- personally, I, I've tried to simplify some of those decisions by having some rules. So one rule I have is that I try not to say no to, to hospitals, right? As somebody who was a patient for a long time, I understand the importance of physicians, and I think to myself that if I can help uh, physicians do a little bit better with even a few patients, that's a, uh, that's a valuable contribution worth my time. I also don't say no to governments. Every time I get a request from government, I I show up. And that's, again, because I think that uh, governments have a potential to create huge impact, even with small changes. Um, And finally, I don't say no to anything from a Muslim country. Uh, I'm Jewish, I'm Israeli. uh, This is kind of my version of diplomacy. So every time I get an invitation from a Muslim country, I show up, I tell some Jewish jokes, I remind them that we're neighbors that we're actually very similar that uh, from a human nature perspective, we're not that different. And that's kind of my version of uh, diplomacy. But despite these three rules, there's lots of other things that make it make it very tough. With time form, uh, one of the things we are thinking about is uh, what we call deathbed regret. Hmm. Right? And th- the question is, when you are going to be on your deathbed, what are the kind of things that you would regret doing and not doing? Right when you are, <clears throat> when you're in a, in your regular day, it is very easy to do the things that seem uh, urgent but unimportant. Right, somebody's asking you to do something for them. There's a, you know, something needs to be done quickly. Uh, other things go by the, the wayside. And it's very easy to think about things on a day by day case. I mean, think think about something like smoking. Right? If you're a smoker and you enjoy smoking, you could wake up every day and say, "Should I smoke one more cigarette or not?" And you would say, "Well, one more cigarette would give me pleasure, and one more cigarette would certainly not kill me." So, let me smoke one more cigarette. And if you thought about life one cigarette at a time, it would always be one cigarette is pleasure and one cigarette would not kill you. <clears throat> um, and the same thing would go about sacrificing uh, things for, for family, right? If you say, what should I do now? Should I do this thing at work that is urgent or should I go and uh, hang out with my, with my kids? And you could say, well, for this one time, I should probably just do this thing at work because it's so urgent and so on. My kids could... Uh, wait another day, but then if you keep on doing this decision every day, then it's a very different approach. So we are trying to get people to think about the long term action, right? Um, so if you were thinking about cigarettes, not one day at a time, but you're thinking about it forever, uh, do you want to be a smoker or do you want not to be a smoker? Uh, or when you want to look at back at your life, how how do you, what do you want to be to achieve? Uh, We think that's a a better perspective on uh, what people want. And that's the perspective we should try and help people achieve. So uh, long term and deathbed regret are the kind of concepts that we are uh, trying to maximize.
0: Mm, I love that. You know, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit. I know we're getting close to about an hour here. Um, I want to talk about this idea of irrational behavior, especially because, you know, I I had a chance to dig into your book, predictably irrational. Um, so, so talk to us about what you've learned about irrational behavior and, and how that applies to our lives and and what we can take away from that, uh, as listeners and then really kind of incorporate into our lives.
1: So, so going back to the way we started, um, My interest in irrationality came from from hospital. and, And the first thing I ever studied was the question of how to remove bandages from burn patients. And the question was, should you remove the bandages quickly or slowly? And the nurses believed that quickly was the right approach. And I hated this. But they wouldn't listen to me because they thought they knew what they were doing. So then I, when I started studying at the university with Hanan Frank, I started doing experiments on how to remove bandages. And it turns out that slower was better. And the reason was that we don't incorporate duration into our evaluation uh, in a direct way. So if you take an experience that lasts 30 minutes and you make it last 60 minutes, you've not doubled it with intensity. Uh, By the way, we just published a paper on pain in the delivery room. Uh, we got women to report pain every 15 minutes in the delivery room, and we try to understand the effect of duration on on delivery pain. And there's really no effect. So deliveries that are lasting 12 hours versus three hours are not perceived as more painful. They are longer, but they're not perceived as more painful. So, um, so then I, the, the duration is what people try to minimize, but it turns out what they try to minimize is the intensity. So what the nurses were doing, which is to rip the bandages off quickly, is a very, very bad idea. Um, But if you think about this more generally, it's basically about the fact that sometimes we have intuitions, and the intuitions are not what actually maximize our well-being. Think about the book, Happy Money right? If I give you some money and I say, or I give you a, a Starbucks gift card, I say, go and get coffee. Your first instinct is let me get coffee for myself. That will make me happier. It turns out if you actually give the coffee to somebody else, you would be happier. But but we don't understand that. So there are lots of cases in which our intuitions uh, lead us awry. Um, now, sometimes Uh, We we understand it, and just at the moment we misbehave. Sometimes we don't understand it completely. There's all kinds of um, ways in which our intuition misleads us, and and also the the world is not designed in the world to minimize the damage that we do to ourselves. So, think about something as simple as the refrigerator. Uh, In the refrigerator, there's this drawer, usually at the bottom of the refrigerator, usually opaque, where they ask you to put all the fruits and vegetables. And as a consequence, almost everybody has rottening fruits and vegetables at the bottom of the refrigerator. Um, It's a shame because they are healthy, they're expensive, and we waste an unbelievable amount of them. If instead we designed the refrigerator such that fruits and vegetables were up front and center, when we open the refrigerator, we would eat more of them, right and they would not rot, and we would not waste as much um, similarly uh, one of the things we find with time management is that people get to the office uh they are basically at their peak performance in the day. most people are very um uh, very focused kind of in the in the morning hours between eight thirty and eleven thirty um and, and people waste those hours on uh, email and Facebook. Now, I'm, I have nothing against email. I have nothing against uh, Facebook. But if you take your productive hours, the few precious hours in which you're kind of really uh, able to produce high-quality work and you use it on something that needs low capacity, it's just a pure waste. Right? So, so there's a ton of things that we do wrong, and we need to basically create systems that make people uh, behave, behave better. And this is kind of the, the, the crucial element is that I really believe in systems. So, you know, think about something like electronic wallets. Uh, Apple just came up with Apple Pay, I think it's called. right? What And, and now you could wave your phone and, and pay for stuff. What, what will happen uh, with this system? Well, what would happen was, would be, my prediction, is that people would have an easier time spending. They will lose track of how much they're spending, and basically credit card debt would increase. Instead, we could have created a system in which it would get people to think more carefully about their money. It would basically warn people about overuse. It would provide people with opportunity cost. It will help them reflect on whether this is a good use of money or not. And then people would think better about money and maybe use it it less and save more and so on. So I think that when we design a system, we're actually controlling people's behaviors. And there are ways to create better systems and worse systems. And often we don't understand the true functionality of human behavior. And because of that, we're designing systems that are not helping people, but actually hurting them. Wow. That was like a sermon, huh? It was beautiful. That's why I didn't say a word. By the way, I think the same thing works for time management, right? So if you think about what the calendar is doing, in most organizations, it allows other people to hijack your time. So if you have a calendar and other people can schedule things on it, right? Other people don't know your priorities. Other people don't see all the things that are not in your calendar. Other people don't see all the things that you're supposed to be doing. They don't know what's your productive hours and so on. (laughs) And all of a sudden, you allow other people to hijack your calendar, to take take over your time. uh, And of course, reducing our productivity. I think it's a design that is clearly without any understanding of human nature. But if you understood human nature and you basically said, let's take the two, three hours and protect them and let's think about how to get the most out of people and get them to be happy at the end of the day that they've achieved something, you would create a very different system.
0: Wow. Uh, I'm not even going to touch it. I'll just leave <laughs> it at that. So, Dan, uh, you know, I have one final question for you, which is how we end everything here at the Unmistakable Creative uh, what is it in your mind uh, that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: <clears throat> Some, makes something or somebody unmistakable. So, so you know, I'll, I'll give you the... I, I believe in science. I, I believe in the end of the day at, in data. Um, I, I think that we have lots of intuitions about all kinds of things in life, and we have to admit that we are fallible often. And not only that, but in the realm of social science, the world changes, right? So the world with computers is different than the world without computers. Uh, the world with phones is different than the world uh, without phones. Um, and I think I think our intuitions often fail. So I'll, I'll give you one example in which I've failed on. Uh, there was a legislation in quite a few states uh, to make texting and driving illegal. And I assumed that this would reduce uh, the incidence of uh, accidents while texting. It turns out it actually increased the incident of texting and driving while, and, and having accidents. And and the reason it increased it because people stopped swe- um, texting and driving above the wheel and they started texting and driving below the wheel. And, you know, I just didn't predict that human stupidity would go that, uh, that <laughs> low. Because, you, know. you know, texting and driving is stupid enough. Texting and driving below the wheel is, is like you really uh, kind of – it's really puzzled me. So at the end of the day, I would like to think that data is the winner. And we need to really be much more systematic about data. And if you think about the areas of life in which we have almost no data, but nevertheless, we go and we have we make strong and, and impactful decisions about. Think about something as a country, right? We're talking about uh, income tax. And should we increase it or decrease it? And what will be the effect on productivity? We actually have, we don't have much data. Uh, the discussion about... Uh, Obamacare and uh, <clears throat> socialized medicine—will uh, it be helpful or not? Which version or not? Again, we have very little, very little data. So, I, I would like to propose that that we need to be much more humble uh, in our assumptions about our own success. So, we need to realize that we, our intuitions are inherently flawed. We need to turn to data whenever it's possible. And we need to understand that the world is changing. So even if we give an answer to something at one uh, step of our development, we might want to visit it five years later because the world might have uh, changed in all kinds of ways, especially given the the fast pace of technology. Um, So I guess my answer is a continuous investigation by the scientific method I think it's the only way to go without making too many mistakes.
0: Amazing. Really, really, really amazing. Uh, Well, Dan, I, I have to say this has been just a brilliant uh, and insightful conversation and uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time on a Saturday morning especially to uh, well, talk I, with I, me and share I, your insights I
1: appreciate you didn't go you didn't go surfing so that was very <laughs> very kind of you to, to skip that for me
0: yeah well that, that's that's a rarity but I mean this is so worth it uh, on so many levels and I, I again you know really really appreciate your time and, and taking the time to join us and share some of your insights with our listeners here at Unmistakable Creative and if you haven't checked out Timeful, Highly, highly recommend it. I'll link it up in in the show notes for all of you listening and we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.